We're going to be reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for the scripture that you've provided with us, that you allow to guide us, your word. We thank you so much for that. You, you allow us to learn more about you, follow you, and please you, give you glory. We thank you that you sent your son down to earth as a baby, and like you did 2,000 years ago, we pray that as we celebrate that uh, this coming month, uh, that we all are kept safe as we travel, and that we have a great great time with family, and that we are reminded of what you did for us. We thank you for your for our country, that we are that we have the freedom to worship like we are today. We uh, pray that that will continue, and we thank you so much. And we pray that in countries that that's not allowed, that we would continue to send our missionaries, and that those countries would eventually open up to your word, and that we would uh, that we would just shine, and that we would display your glory. And as Cody comes today, I pray that you would speak through him and that he encourages us with your word. In your name I pray, amen. What is your testimony? What is your testimony? A testimony is from a witness. If you ever uh, had to go to court and be part of the jury, you have to give A witness, you are a a testimony. Your testimony is from you, a witness. The witness is that which gives a statement or declaration of something that did or did not happen. And a faithful witness testifies to the truth. A faithful witness's testimony is even evidence for the truth. Now, probably all of us as Christians at one point or another have been asked to give our testimony. And when you were asked, most of us would probably recognize that you're being asked to tell how you came to be saved. And it's at that point when that question is asked that probably most of us have grown a bit uncomfortable. I know I certainly I I know I certainly have. Partly because it's the nature of the past The nature of the the past life before saving grace that makes us uncomfortable. To even recall our sin in the past brings us to a level of uncomfort. And partly because there seems to be very little to talk about. Maybe that's one of the reasons. If you were saved at a young age, maybe like I was at five or six, you don't have too much to talk about. Yes, I disobeyed my mommy and... 
I touched something I shouldn't have, like the stove. I mean, come on, right? Or maybe because your testimony seems dry and dull and boring. And if our testimonies are judged on a horizontal scale, as if how's mine compared to the next person's, then all of us just go on home. Because the Apostle Paul wins out here. First Timothy, hands down, no question, he wins. And yet, if our testimonies are not just how one came to saving grace, but also... And how the continued work of that grace has been operating in sanctification. And if we realize that our testimonies are not designed to be horizontal in nature. But vertical in the sense that they're to point to the work of Christ. Then we can stand shoulder to shoulder with Paul this morning. And every single one of us have a unique testimony. But every one of our testimonies are equally powerful testimonies. Because all of them point to the saving power of Jesus Christ for sinners. And there's no one here that's not a sinner. So Paul this morning, 1 Timothy 1, is is writing to this church. Timothy here, young pastor of a church that Paul has founded in Ephesus. Encouraging them. Something along these lines. I, Paul, was once one of these false teachers. If you were here with us last week, we've been looking at the false teachers Paul is warning Timothy against. Tell them, charge them, he says back in verse 3, stop teaching. Paul's saying here, I was one of those false teachers. I was formerly a blasphemer. Therefore, Timothy, teach sound doctrine rooted in the work of Christ because I'm a testimony of its life-changing power. And he even argues for us this morning. Christians sitting here almost 2,000 years after this is written. That we might believe. That we might understand that the eternal saving power of Jesus Christ. Exhibited in a sinner's life. Testifies to this world the nature of true doctrine. Let me say it again. That the eternal saving power of Jesus Christ. Exhibited in your life. The testimony of the saving grace of Christ. In your life, testifies to this world the nature of true doctrine. It's the litmus test. Does it change? Does it, does it take from something that is here and moves it here? In a supernatural way. And Paul is saying the gospel has done that. Therefore is to be the root of sound doctrine. Well, if you're looking at your Bible this morning, and I hope and trust that you are, we're taking on 12 through 17 this morning, and by way of help for us to understand it more clearly, I've divided it into three sections. We'll look at 12 through 14, entitled, Jesus is our strength. We'll take 15 on its own, Jesus is our savior. And then we'll take 16 and 17 together, Jesus on display. Now, it may be helpful for us before we plunge into 12 through 14 to remind ourselves of sort of what is the uh, central theme of the entire book. What's the hub? What's the core of the book that we can continually remind ourselves of that help us better understand the different parts of the book? So what we have determined is the central core teaching of the book is this. And I read this a couple weeks ago. Biblical sound doctrine springing from a pure faith, 
will be confirmed in the church through sound living, sound teaching, and submission to appropriate relationship roles designed to guard the purity of sound doctrine. Well, here this morning we're going to see biblical sound doctrine springing from a pure faith will be confirmed in the church through sound living and sound teaching. That's what we're going to see this morning. By the testimony of Paul. Paul's been instructing Timothy up to this point and now it's as if he's going to say, and and let me give you a personal testimony of what I've been teaching and how it works. He starts off in verse 12. And we get all of two words into verse 12 and we must stop. Notice he says, I thank him. Paul doesn't begin by saying, I'm grateful that I've been judged faithful appointing me to his service. No, he grounds his ministry as a worker of the gospel in the strength of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Jesus For the glorious gospel that you have given me and by which I have been entrusted. You see that in verse 11. His strength, his faithfulness, the work of Christ overcame my past, he's saying. Through whose, his overflowing grace overcame my past. Evidenced by the faith and love in Christ and produced my ministry appointment. Paul is a minister of the gospel because of the strength and faithfulness of Christ given to him. Paul's not stating here that his faithfulness is the basis of his ministry. As if I was faithful, he judged me faithful. That's what he says. He judged me faithful, that's why I'm in the ministry. Because of my faithfulness. No, that's not what he says. He starts off with saying, I thank him who has given me strength. He bases his faithfulness in the strength that Christ has given him. And at the same time, though, we have to acknowledge that the one who has been given strength by Christ to be faithful must be faithful. Or otherwise he has not seen that strength. Therefore, when someone is called to the ministry, we should see that they are being faithful. Therefore, as a church, even now with one elder... One pastor, myself, and no others. We should be those praying that the those that are called are going to be evidenced by their faithfulness. And when we speak to them of their faithfulness, they will ground that faithfulness, not in themselves, but in the strength and grace being given to them by the work of Christ. We should, as a church, always be praying that God would raise up men to be elders and deacons. That God would raise up even women to serve faithfully the church, the body of Christ. That we would all be, as kings and priests in this eternal kingdom, those who are being faithful. And recognizing even, humbly, that our faithfulness is not our own. The fact that you're here this morning, whether you... Struggle to get here, whether you wanted to be here and drug your feet here, whether you're here out of delight. The fact that you are here is due to the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit giving you the grace and ability to be here. And therefore we thank him. We are to be those who are the most thankful of people. And we are to be those who are to be grateful in the ministry. You may not have a, a ministry that is well known. You may not even be seen as a minister of the gospel. But the fact that you are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ places you in, in the ministry. And we should be in some ways faithful. And we should certainly be thankful. 
Now notice what he's saying here. I thank him who's given me strength. Verse 12. I'm in his service. I'm in the ministry now. Though formally. I wasn't always that way, Paul says. Though formally I was a blasphemer. Though formally I was as if all those other false teachers I've been warning you about, I was one of those. Though formally I was a persecutor of the church. And though formally I was an insolent, your Bible would say, or arrogant opponent. Now Paul is speaking the truth about his past. But in some ways he's undercutting himself a little bit. Paul, you boiled your past down to three words. Blasphemer, persecutor, and opponent. But Paul, you're doing yourself a bit of justice here. Injustice. Go with me to the book of Acts. Acts 7. There is a reason why Paul is speaking in a Cliff Notes version of his past. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I want us to understand really what... Paul used to be. Acts seven fifty eight. So on page nine sixteen of your pew Bible, if you need that, it says this, beginning with Stephen here. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." So here is this deacon, gifted by the Holy Spirit to preach and serve Stephen who's being stoned, and the one who's in support of this stoning is a young man by the name of Saul, who will become, after his conversion, Paul, of which is writing First Timothy. Look down at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, no need to flip over there. I'll read it for you. But if you were to be over in Galatians chapter 1, you'll read more of Paul's persecution. He says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. First Timothy tells us, Formerly I was, this is what his former life was like. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me and in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Verse 23 of Galatians 1. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Every one of us sitting in here this morning has a past. And let me just say that every one of us has a past of sin. And so I'm not sure what your past is, but I can guarantee you it's the same as my past. It may not have been the exact same way, but it is a past of sin. And Paul here is saying, you think you're bad. I tried to destroy you guys. I did everything in my power to not only be an against the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to destroy those who were for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, he says, verse 13, 
B, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, does that mean that every one of us this morning, if you are unsaved, if you have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that you're not really that guilty because you're operating ignorantly in your sin? The answer is no. You're in unbelief. You may be ignorant of your sin, but you're not innocent of your sin. And Paul he here even is recognizing, contrasting himself with the false teachers who are claiming to be believers. Paul's saying, when I was opposing and teaching false doctrine, I wasn't even a believer. You guys claim to be believers, and therefore, a warning. Your life is bearing testimony to your false doctrine, thus your unsaved nature, and thus you need to repent. Paul's not saying that we are innocent in our unbelief. No, our unbelief condemns us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Grace must be poured out on us for us to move from ignorance to understanding. And it happens that way. Even here in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. We could spend a whole day, we could spend a whole sermon series on just that word, overflowed. What does it mean that the grace of God is to such an extent that it overcomes all of our sin and then just overflows? Overwhelms us. Drowns us, as it were. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So much grace given that it overflows and that overflowing is faith and love given to us And found in and seen in the work of Jesus Christ. Grace greater than all our sin, the hymn of the faith says. His testimony, Paul's testimony here, is providing a witness to the true doctrine. Doctrine taught correctly based on the work of Christ. Now, if there's any question... As to whether or not Paul has something he has brought to the table by which he has been appointed to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 cancels it all out. First point was in 12 through 14. Jesus our strength and now verse 15 Jesus our savior. The first of three trustworthy statements is this one here. Paul three times in 1 Timothy says to us, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here is maybe the pinnacle of these three trustworthy statements. He's saying this one is is completely and totally for your acceptance. All of your life can ride on this statement. All of your hope, all of your eternity can ride on this statement. This one statement deserves your complete trust, he says. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There is the statement by which all eternity rests. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to help sinners. He came into the world to help the helpless, to save those who could not save themselves. This should ring in our ears, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Notice, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This statement tells us many, many things, but one is the world needs saving and that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. We throw this word gospel around all the time and the question often lies with what is the gospel? And if we just took what we have here in 12 through 17, we could describe it in this way. The gospel is when God extends mercy through the work of Jesus Christ. And that work looks like life, perfect life, his perfect death and his resurrection, conquering the grave. Through the work of his son to ignorant, unbelieving sinners in order to save them forever. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God, through the work of his perfect son, saves unbelieving, ignorant sinners. We could build on that all day long. We could say this, that God extends mercy through the work of his perfect son to save unbelieving, unrepentant, ignorant enemies. Of him. And to save us forever. What does he save us from? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's he saving us from? He's saving us from his own wrath. That has to be poured out upon sin. God is perfect. And therefore anything imperfect. Is that which he must punish. So even this week, when we have sinned as believers, God hates that sin. That's why we have an assurance of pardoning grace in our service. Because it declares to us, oh brother and sister, do not, do not be discouraged that your hope in eternal life is in vain because Christ has paid for that sin. What has he paid for? He's paid for that sin needing to be punished forever under the wrath of God. We are saved not just from ourselves or not just from the, from the, 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 the nastiness of sin. We're saved from eternal punishment merited, given by, determined by the wrath of God. Notice what Paul is instructing us here. It's as if Paul is saying, what have we done to affect saving grace? What, what do we bring that God would find worthy of giving us eternal life? And you know, you do bring something to the table for eternal life. You bring sin. That's it. Nothing good. So if you thought you didn't bring anything, that's wrong. If you thought you brought anything good, that's wrong as well. All you brought to the table is a pile of nastiness that determines that God should judge you to hell forever. And he says, I'll take that and I'll give you righteousness. I'll take that and I'll give you his blood that covers all your sin forever. There is nothing good that we bring to the table. Even One billionth of a chance of being saved we don't have. And that one billionth is being more than generous. We bring nothing. But he gives us everything. Notice Paul is 
Stating that saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the sinners of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I'm the chief, I'm the worst of sinners. And Paul's not having this sense of false humility. He genuinely, genuinely means that. And he doesn't say, of whom I was the worst of sinners. No, he realizes that his past condemns him even now, but save Christ. He's currently, he recognizes that his, he, he's discouraged, he, he maybe not discouraged, but he, he certainly recognizes that his sin in the past was wrong. We may not have committed some of the sins Paul has, but any true believer in Jesus Christ who recognizes their sin before a holy God recognizes that they're the chief of sinners. Oh yeah, I may, I may not have the same sin as you and you may not have the sin, same sin as I, but are we judging it on a horizontal level? If we're judging our sin based upon how each other is doing, we, yeah, I, you may be better than I. But if we're judging it before an almighty God, we are all the worst of sinners. Notice how Paul gives his testimony here. Of whom I am the foremost. And he's already told us he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an arrogant opponent. Paul helps us with how we should even give testimony to one another of our past. And we should give testimony to one another of our past. Paul is acknowledging the past, he's honest about it, he's humble about it, and yet notice he deflects the focus toward Christ. We can even, in our pride, expound upon our testimony in a way that glorifies our sin rather than glorifies the work of Christ who saves us from our sin. Because even in our best day of unbelief, our title is still blasphemer, persecutor, and arrogant opponent. And Paul says, yes, that was that. But I'm not that anymore. By the grace of God. So as we share our testimonies with one another. Which should not only be how we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But also how that grace given to us in faith. Is continually to manifest itself in our lives. We should be those who are acknowledging the work of Christ. But then directing it toward him. Directing glory and worship to what he's doing. Not how it's happening in our life. Paul here Continuing to encourage us, even in the, the sense of that great hymn of the faith. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Christian, I'm not speaking to the unbeliever this morning. Christian, do you know your sin? Do you recognize that the gospel is for you, the Christian? It not only saved you, but is that means of strength for you even in your sin now? It is for Paul. It not only frees you from your sin, it also removes your guilt. And it also has broken the power of slavery to sin. The center of the testimony of Paul's life is the center of your testimony if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is, Christ Jesus came to save you, a sinner. That's the center of your testimony. And it doesn't matter if you were saved at five, or if you were saved at 35, or 55, or 75. 
or 95. Christ Jesus came to the world to save you, a sinner. Are you a sinner this morning? The answer is yes. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I don't know. But you can know that by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Don't leave if you're unsure about that. Let us talk to you about that. Let's move to the last point, 16 and 17. Jesus on display. 16 and 17, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. What's the ultimate center of God's mercy in saving sinners? Answer, to display to the world his kindness, patience, love, grace, mercy toward his undeserving enemies. Notice he says, he might display. Who's he displaying this to? He's displaying it to the world of sinners. What's he displaying? He's displaying his perfect, extraordinary patience. As an example, what's that example? As a testimony to those who were, to those who are, are to believe in him for eternal life. And not just eternal life, but in a life that is free from sin and death and tears and suffering. A life that is perfect. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so glorious that it is not simply save us from sin and free us from guilt and break the slavery to sin, but it also gives us something. There's also a positive aspect to the gospel. It gives us eternal life. It gives us a father that is perfect, no matter how imperfect your earthly father has been. It gives you a family. It gives you hope. And thus it's the wonder of not only Paul's unworthiness, but also the work of Christ that brings Paul to this doxology in chapter and verse 17. The hymn of the faith beneath the cross of Jesus helps us articulate those two wonders. One, that we are unworthy, but also the wonder of Christ. It says, and from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonder of his glorious love and of my own worthlessness. And this wonder of my unworthiness and his wonderfulness overflows into a doxology to the king of ages that is God immortal meaning never ending invisible he's a spirit and his work and glory alone can be seen to the only God there is no one else be honor may there be esteem may there be value as priceless and precious of the highest worth be given of glory of praise and worship forever and ever without end Paul writes this all the time Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable, how unknowing are his ways. The immovable rock of saving grace is Christ. The rock upon which this church and all other true churches of Jesus Christ are built upon. Upon the saving grace of God. Found and seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth of this Saving grace to undeserving sinners, as one commentary puts it, removes all reasoning and leaves only room for doxologies. Paul, as if, he's gotten to the point where he says, I don't know what else to say. 
I've articulated the best I know how. I'm left with nothing but to praise. And that's exactly what he does. That Christ, that God, might gain all the glory. Why? Because true doctrine, sound doctrine, springing from the gospel of Jesus Christ, transforms undeserving sinners into children of God. And false doctrine, in contrast, does the very opposite. So is this the cry of worship from your heart this morning? Have you recognized the gospel of Jesus Christ for you as saved now to the point that you're left with Paul and all you can do is, let me just sing. Let me just pray. Let me just give testimony to the fact that he saved me and he's given me grace. And if you can say yes to that, to him be glory alone. Oh, may that... May he gain much glory from your heart springing up in worship this morning. And if you cannot say that this morning, you're a Christian and your heart is heavy. You find yourself saying, I I don't feel like worshiping like Paul is doing here. Then I would just encourage you to take today, take this afternoon, take this week. Go back and read 12 through 16. Just read it over and over and over. Read it 30 times in a row. No less, but more. And let that truth of what Christ has done wash over your discouraged heart to the point that you're left with Paul and saying, oh yeah, I can give praise like that now. He's reminded me by his word of what he's done for me. The testimony of a life changed by the gospel is the most powerful witness against false teaching, false teachers that are powerless to produce equal results. Your testimony of the saving work of Jesus Christ this morning is an absolute assault against the gates of hell. It cannot compete. There is nothing that is as of equal value as the good news of what Christ has done for you. And therefore, when we encounter false teaching in the world that is around us, whether it's in a book, on the internet, you hear a false preacher... There's no need to compete with them. Just declare what Christ has done for you. Just live by that grace that has been given to you for his glory. That testimony alone is enough to confront. Ask someone this week, can I tell you what Christ has done for me? And if that's hard for you to do to someone you don't know, then start with someone you do know. Start around the dinner table and just say, children, can I tell you what Jesus has done for me? And I trust that that will build and continue to overflow to those that are around you that may not know the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are struck yet again as we are every single time we open your word that you love us. That your love is so profound and great that it just overflows and overcomes all our sins. Father, we thank you that we can take to the bank for eternity the trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to the world to save me, to save us. We delight in that. We find ourselves humbled by it, and yet we also find ourselves encouraged and strengthened and delighted 
And so, Father, we pray that you would you would gain much worship and much glory through our delight in the saving work that you have done for us. Father, we pray that we would, as Christians, be those who are most continually meditating upon what you have done to the point that it it does overflow to the unbelieving friend and neighbor and co-worker. Don't let us grow complacent. Don't let us grow blind even to our past. Don't let us see ourselves as more than we ought. You saved me, a sinner. On my best day, I'm a sinner. But you love me. And you have assured me and keep for me, holding fast for me, the promise of eternal life based upon the merit of Christ, your son. And what a joy that is. And that leads us to worship. And that leads us to community and delighting in brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even now, Father, as we take the table together, acknowledging that the young lady or young man or husband or wife or child upon my left and upon my right is my family. Has been, has been bought and paid for and brought to the table along with me for the glory of the one who's at the head of the table that we've been served and are served by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. A body that's no longer broken. Blood that was shed once for all. And was then raised from the dead and stands as witness of the perfection of the work of Christ. So may we delight together to take this table. And may it be an encouragement for us, reminding us of the work of Christ until you come again. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.